0: at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod the link to both of those can also be found in the show notes finally please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform now on to
1: the next topic right do
0: you do
2: you need my video on at this end
1: uh we don't have to have it on uh we do something we put it up on youtube it can be a blank screen if you if you prefer I Um, i don't mind having it on i mean you're 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 a beautiful man, oh, Paul idea. we want to look at you and we have everybody <laughs> enjoy enjoy and bask in your your beautifulness so sure you see uh, I've got a here. custom background I've got a custom background here that I put up because I, this is I'm, I'm not that I want to lead the discussion in any particular direction. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've had job before, so we're not going to uh, you know go with the introductions and stuff let's just get into it because I know we have a little bit of time, but Paul, I got to finally meet you at uh, at the current this year in, in Boulder that Amber put on is wonderful, and we had a lot of fun, I ate some some interesting meals together, a lot of meat and stuff like that. but you're doing some pretty cool stuff learning and, and teaching us a lot but less i I just saw something that you put up on Twitter about ferritin. Uh, and kind of a, uh, you know, how, how that can be uh, deceiving for women. But, well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. and then We maybe can talk a little bit about lectins and some other stuff. Whatever we have that we can get in in the time you have. So tell me a little bit about that tweet is put up about how ferritin can be deceiving. And I am seeing, in my experience, that elevated iron levels usually run pretty hand-in-hand with metabolic syndrome in general. And I think we see a lot of people trying to say that, iron causes diabetes, I think it's the other way around. I think that probably metabolic disease leads to to faulty iron storage. I'd like to get your perspective on that. Yeah,
2: well, I, I think it's actually a surrogate marker. So one thing is you can have an absolute iron deficiency, or you can have sufficient iron in the body that your body just can't use, something we call latent iron deficiency or functional iron deficiency. So Ferritin is what we traditionally consider to be the storage version of iron, and it's what we call an acute phase reactant, as you're well known. If you have any inflammation in your body, the ferritin stores will go up. And the reason for this is because bacteria love iron, and it's a natural defense mechanism of the body. And if the body thinks you have an infection, it will lock away iron in storage so the bacteria can't get to it and that's a really well evolutionarily preserved trait and that's very effective for dealing with an acute infection the problem is if you have something that the body thinks is an infection but isn't such as a a chronic inflammatory state the kind that autoimmune diseases can induce then the body will also lock that iron away and that means that basically you're starving yourself of iron for prolonged periods of time But when we measure your iron storage, because you've got so much locked away, we say, well, gee, it looks like you've got a huge amount of iron here. Iron deficiency isn't the problem. Um, The trouble is accessing the iron. And if you can't access the iron, so the cytochrome um, enzymes that require iron, they don't function properly. So the whole process of oxidative phosphorylation, which is how we burn energy, that's impaired. And if you can't burn energy, you can't lose weight. You feel lousy. It's also necessary for the production of neurotransmitters like dopamine. If you don't have enough dopamine getting around, you feel, you just feel lousy. So you can't, it's really important not to confuse inability to access iron with a deficiency in iron. They're two very separate things, but they'll prevent present very, very similarly.
0: Is there a preferred way to, to test that to find out whether you have a deficiency in iron versus just a storage and unaccessible iron. Yeah, I mean it's
2: really complex. Um, the the preferred way is to do a bone marrow aspirate. Um, you know, drill into the bone, and we don't do that. Um, clinically or ser- serologically with the blood testing, what we do is we'll look for other inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein or erythrocyte sedimentation rate will be two which are very useful Um, there is another assay called hepcidin and this is uh, only been around for 10 years or so but unfortunately in australia i still can't get a hepcidin assay done so uh, there's two other things that we can have done one's called a soluble transferrin receptor and one's called a zinc protoporphyrin and i mean basically uh, the zinc protoporphyrin is interesting it's just that if you have normally you have iron in this molecule and if you have a deficiency of iron, then you start to have zinc inserted in its place. So I'll generally do the whole constellation of those tests, and then you have to you have to use a bit of clinical judgment to interpret it because there's no one perfect, um, you know, uh, dichotomous outcome that you can get that says yes you're iron deficient or no you're not, and it's the whole clinical presentation.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you brought up hepcidin. I think that's interesting because a lot of people talk about. Um you know the assumption for most people hear about on a meat-heavy or carnivore-type diet is they're going to be overloaded with iron, and we have this um this enzyme or this uh, hormone hepcidin produced by our, our hepatocytes, who which one of its function is to regulate iron absorption at the level of the enterocyte, and there's some other ways where it, it affects other things about releasing iron from different cells in the body as well. So I, I, we find that we we don't at least that's my observations people my observation is people tend not to end up with iron overload, particularly in, a, in a metabolically honest.
2: hundred percent. So, I mean, this is sort of slightly uh, tangential to iron deficiency, but just because you put iron into the diet, the body is very efficient at only absorbing what it needs. So this hepcidin will regulate iron absorption uh, through something called ferroportin. Um, and if you don't need the iron, the body won't absorb it. The other problem is though that if you have chronic intestinal inflammation for whatever cause you know affecting the small intestine then you won't be able to absorb iron uh, at all so you can have sufficient iron in the diet but you're not absorbing it
1: Yeah there's an interesting I looked at a I guess grant this is in a rat study but when they when they induce diabetes in rats and I think they give them a countdown, I think it's like I think it's called streptozotocin uh, diabetes in these rats. And when, what, they, what they see is their hepcidin levels go down. And so that would make sense that, you know, they, they have problems with iron because of that. And so, um, you know, I, I find that pretty, pretty interesting. and That may be associated. But let's talk a little bit, because you mentioned inflammatory gut. And I've got a picture of lectins behind me. And there, there are some some people out there that believe that those may have a role in that, and you are one of them. Can you walk us through a little bit of that, and then talk about maybe some of the downstream effects? I know you, at, at one of your presentations, you talked about. I think it was neurodegenerative issues, perhaps associated with that. Can can you kind of give us a little primer on the lectins for those that haven't read Dr. Stephen Bembridge's paradox book? And you know, I know he's he's pushed yeah, that. I'll probably know, just. I'll put something out there
2: at the start. So Stephen Gundry has done an excellent job of summarising some of the harmful effects of lectins, but I think he does go off the beaten track a little bit when he starts to talk about meat. And there's uh, there's several. Uh, if you actually have a read of his book, uh, it's actually I was chatting to Ken Berry about it. He said it best. It's schizophrenic. Um, the first part tells you you know how bad plant-based lectins are. And the second part tells you to eat plants. (laughs) Um, And if you actually have a look at his, uh, there's several clear contradictions within his book. I won't go into the the science of where he's got it wrong, but he's certainly uh, wrong on a few levels with regards to his uh, recommendation to avoid meat. So uh, with regards to lectins, what are they? So they're proteins that bind to carbohydrates or these little sugar moiety and every cell in our body actually has a, uh, these little sugar moiety sticking out on a, uh, on a little protein. So if you eat a lectin and that can bind to this, uh, this sugar, if that can somehow be absorbed into your body, that can bind to your cells and start having effects that we may not normally predict would happen. So, There's a few things that need to happen for the lectins to be a problem though. First of all, you need to eat them. And there's lectins, there's many different types of lectins and they're contained in meats as well as plants. But when we look at the data, the ones from meat sources don't seem to be deleterious in the way that the ones from plants are. Number two, after you've eaten it, you need to have it being absorbed across the intestinal lining. So if you think about the stomach or the intestines, it's actually outside the body, which sounds crazy, but basically you've got this hollow tube and, in, and which is uh, lined with this uh, mucosa, and that extends from the mouth all the way to the anus. And in effect, it's like a donut. So the hole in the middle of a donut is still considered the outside of a donut. And that's the way we think about the gastrointestinal tract. So these lectins then have to cross the wall of this gastrointestinal tract to get into the body and then your body has to react with them in certain ways. Now, some lectins will just do damage uh, just by virtue of binding, and other lectins will do damage by way of interacting with the immune system. But the immune system interactions actually require that you have basically picked the wrong parents, Mm -hmm. that you have a a certain genetic type that will lead to a susceptibility. So let's... uh, Let's assume, first of all, that you're eating lectin. So you might be having wheat germ glutenin or concalivin A or a, a soy lectin or pea lectin or peanut agglutinin or, you know, there's one paper I read recently had uh, established there was at least 119 different plant-based lectins. So there's a huge variety out there. One lectin is called gluten, which we all know about, and that causes leaky gut. So in the stomach, you've actually got these cells, which are uh, held together side by side, and where they join together is called a tight junction. And if the cells move apart, that means that whatever you've eaten can pass between those cells. So gluten, which is a lectin, can cause these tight junctions to separate in everybody. And so we usually think about it as being problematic for people with uh, celiac disease, but the data very clearly shows that leakiness of the gut will increase in every individual proportional to how much gluten they ingest. And then if those tight junctions are loose, that's what we call uh, increased intestinal permeability, then the lectins you have ingested then move into your body. And that's when there's a smorgasbord of different effects. So for instance, they might bind to uh, some cells in the gut and stimulate histamine release. They bind to what we call IgE molecules on the outside of mast cells. That leads to histamine release, which leads to an increase in acid secretion. There you go, you've got reflux. They might increase to insulin receptors where they actually stimulate the insulin receptors um, that will stimulate fat storage. So there's very clear evidence that when you put a, a lectin and there's more than one lectin that will do this, you know, wheat germ and gluten and it's a prototypical one, you'll get a prolonged activation of insulin, it's as though you're attaching an insulin molecule to it that's actually supercharged. If it goes to a leptin receptor in the brain, so leptin is what regulates uh, hormetic uh, energy balance, among other things, um, that can actually cause a blockade of that receptor. It can actually attach to nerves as well. They can actually ascend nerves. So there's very good evidence that it can uh, uh, travel from the gut lining through the vagus nerve, because the vagus nerve actually basically encounters the uh, the gut and go all the way to the brain. And when they've done studies where in where they attach a fluorescing molecule to the lectins, and they've done it in animal studies yeah. for obvious reasons, and then they perform an autopsy on the animal, they actually see these lectins sitting on neurons in the brain and the the neurological condition that's been most studied is actually Parkinson's disease. So on top of this, they can cause autoimmune effects. So through something called molecular mimicry. So autoimmune disease, it's often thought to be horribly complicated, but it's really simple. Your immune system is designed to fight germs and bugs. And it does a pretty good job for the most part. But if it has a case of mistaken identity where it can identify one of your own cells and mistake that healthy cell for an invader, it will then start to attack that invader. That's what we call molecular mimicry. And that underpins most autoimmune disease. And unfortunately, the lectins can look very, very similar to some of our healthy cells in some people. That's where the genetic variation comes in. So if your immune system uh, sees this particular, this lectin and says, that's foreign, I'm gonna start to attack that. Well, that same immune reaction can then identify that uh, what we call antigen or epitope on a healthy cell and start to attack the healthy cell. So you've got multiple mechanisms right there for how lectins can be incredibly deleterious to
1: our health. Paul, I mean, lectins are basically damn near in every plant there is for the most part to some degree. I mean, some are, are in higher concentrations. They're probably more problematic for people. Do you think there is um, – because you know, there's are people out there that high-lectin diets. They don't have just tremendous disease incidents. You know, we, we, you know, there's all kinds of population. Do you think there's a, a number of factors – uh, yeah, I know you talked about the genetic thing. Do you think there's any other additional environmental things that are making people more susceptible uh, to lectin-induced uh, leaky gut and and this, the subsequent sequela of that? And do you think that uh, are there things that can mitigate that in the diet? That perhaps are do we are we aware of things that can mitigate lectins, whether either either via preparation or other things eaten at the same time?
2: Yes, yeah, so absolutely. So. But one of the really interesting things is that these are carbohydrate binding proteins. So if you ingest sugar at the same time that you ingest lectin, they'll actually bind together and you can get in effect a decoy receptor. So the people with autoimmune disease who are taking etanicept and infliximab or any of these, uh, these uh, tumor necrosis factor monoclonal antibodies will understand what a decoy receptor does. I think a Atenocept is the uh, decoy receptor example. And so if you ingest a sugar and a, and a lectin at the same time, if that lectin has an affinity for that particular sugar, and sometimes they will, then it will bind to it and it will prevent it from being absorbed and doing damage. And interestingly, in some uh, mice models, uh, it's very difficult to get uh, ethic board approval to do this in humans. When they gave lectins plus sugar, they did a lot less damage to the gut than when they gave lectins alone. And I find that's very interesting because it suggests that people who are on a heavy plant-based diet, but a very low carb, they might actually be getting more damage from lectins than people who are having the high dose of lectins, but having the normal crap amount of sugar that we often have. So that's, uh, that's probably one interesting one. One way we can use this, binding effect to our advantage without consuming sugar through something called glucosamine. Now, glucosamine, as you know, has been long used to treat arthritis. And every bit, you're an orthopedic surgeon, you've probably had, you know, half a dozen patients every week for most of your career saying, it helps me doc. And you've read the systematic reviews, the same as I have, and they say it's crap. Glucosamine does not help osteoarthritis. And that's because when we do the studies of osteoarthritis, they have proven degenerative osteoarthritis we see the cartilage being worn away on the x-ray and that's the exact population that it won't help because glucosamine will bind to lectins and some people will have an inflammatory joint pain that's not degenerative that's exacerbated by lectins so if we tested glucosamine on the people with inflammatory joint pains what we typically call the seronegative spondyloarthropathies they are the ones who would get better So moving on to a couple of other things that can ameliorate some of the deleterious effects of the lectins. Pollution is a big one. We know that the PM10 pollution is particularly harmful. That increases the intestinal permeability. That's been well proven. So if we can uh, avoid pollution. So I recommend that whenever you're traveling through a tunnel in the car, you press the recirculate button on your car's air conditioner. If you're exercising, you want to exercise at least, preferably 250 meters away from any roadway. If you have a choice in the time of day you exercise, don't exercise during peak hour times. The middle of the day and uh, outside of peak hour times have actually been shown to have a reduction in particulate matter pollution. You can do something about that. Pesticide residue, is uh, that's something which is a huge problem. Um, there's something over, over 90% of the kale sold in the United States today is actually has detectable pesticide residue on it. Um, this is massive and we know that pesticides cause a big problem. For instance, this study where they're inducing Parkinson's disease in dog models, they actually found that by just adding in a touch of pesticide, they were able to accelerate the development of the Parkinson's disease. And that's why that became a model for actually studying the condition because the pesticides were so effective. And these are pesticides that we're personally constantly exposed to if we're eating plant-based foods. Uh, emulsifiers in foods is another one that will increase the intestinal permeability. So the polysorbate 80, often known as the E433, there's a, a couple of other ones. They cause leaky gut. So this huge. So I just saw you picked up the mic there, Sean. <laughs> no, I'm ready. I'm on, I am I want to beat Zach the punch. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of other mitigating factors, so we said you can have glucosamine. So there is one emulsifier which is actually beneficial and that's called lecithin. So lecithin has a chemical in it called phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylcholine forms 70% of the mucus lining of our guts. So if we supplement with either lecithin or my preference is to just supplement straight with phosphatidylcholine, that will help provide an increased barrier to lectins coming across. And there's some excellent studies on inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis, which show a significant improvement in symptoms when you simply supplement with this phosphatidylcholine. Um, You also mentioned food preparation techniques. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the, uh, the older cultures, say the Japanese who consume soy, that they have their natto, they ferment it, that there's often very elaborate almost ritualistic food preparation, um, because we know that raw foods are highest in damaging lectins. Now some lectins cannot be, uh, you, you can't reduce them, but say phytohemagglutinin that's found in uh, red kidney beans, um, that's very susceptible. And you can probably reduce the toxic concentration down to about 5% um, with correct cooking and preparation.
1: Just speaking about leaking, because I, you and I had a conversation on the uh, phone a while back, and you know, we saw a presentation that uh, Dr. a few comments uh, regarding uh, PEG 400, polyethylene glycol 400, and you say you, you, you prefer something else for looking at kind of permeability. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that?
2: Okay, so that was just a bit scratchy there, but I think what you're talking about is a polyethylene glycol as a, as a test for intestinal permeability. Um, Polyethylene glycol itself will actually increase intestinal permeability. So I can understand that that it is very accurate at diagnosing intestinal permeability. But as a physician, I just feel a little bit uncomfortable sending my patients for a test um, that I suspect will actually worsen, even if it's only transiently their symptoms. There are alternative tests. And there is a lot of toing and froing and debating about the sensitivity and specificity of those tests. But personally, I use a, a double sugar test, um, and I combine that with markers of inflammation within the intestine called a fecal calprotectin. So the double sugar test is we give people two sugars, one that should normally be well absorbed, and one that isn't well absorbed. And if we then give you that sugar, and measure your urine several hours later, we should only see the sugar that's normally well absorbed in reasonable quantities. If we see an increase in the sugar that shouldn't be absorbed, um, that's now able to be absorbed because you have leaky gut and that's showing up in the urine, that's a very good indication that you've got increased intestinal permeability. Uh, Fecal colprotectin is actually a marker of neutrophil activity, which is a white blood cell. Um, But because it's in the faeces, it re- really reflects what's happening with inside the gastrointestinal tract very accurately. And i found that to be incredibly responsive, even in a matter of one to two weeks, um, we can get massive reductions in that with dietary change.
1: Yeah, Paul, let's talk a little bit about the dietary changes that, that you're, you're seeing that's effective with and then, and then perhaps some of the, you know, then what happens after that? You know, I know you have employed, in some cases, the style diet, can you talk to me about how that impacts leaky gut based on these tests or, or, or what other dietary uh, recommendations you might have and how those seem to, seem to impact that?
2: So probably in terms of the dietary interventions, the low-lying fruit is to cut out the bad stuff. So let's start with some of the additives. Now, this is going to be one that's surprising for most people. Medium-chain triglycerides, they increase intestinal permeability without a doubt. So there's been both human and my studies that show both C8, C10, and C12. The best evidence is for C10, which is uh, capric acid. Um, so C8, caprylic acid, and C12 is lauric acid. They have all been shown individually to increase intestinal permeability. Uh, so I actually strongly recommend that people stop taking those. Uh, In terms of cutting out, cut out the emulsifiers with the exclusion of blephafen, which as we know is, because of containing phosphatidylcholine, is not a deleterious emulsifier. Try and avoid your pollution and all those kind of things as well as you can. Uh, We could potentially supplement with a few different things like glucosamine, et cetera, et cetera. There's also a couple of probiotics that um, uh, Plantarum and rhamnosus have actually been shown to be beneficial for leaky gut in a couple of different studies. Uh, We cut out the lectin-rich foods. Uh, So that's primarily all your grains, um, and that's every grain. And even some things like oats, which is technically a gluten-free food that contains a protein called avenin, um, which at least 10% of people with celiac disease will cross-react to. So there's a lot of these other proteins in grains that we probably haven't discovered yet. They just haven't been studied. So I absolutely eliminate all grains, all legumes. Um, you know your pulses, beans, those kind of things. Nightshade vegetables is a big one, which surprises a lot of people, um, because a lot of people on ketogenic diets they're still having their eggplant there, uh, uh, aubergine as you guys might call it, or your bell peppers or your capsicums, those kind of things, your chilies. Um, that graphic you got behind you, hits the nail right on the head with that one. Um, occasionally we talk about um, A1 dairy protein. So there's a, the casein, the A1 casein protein can actually be converted into something called um, beta casomorphin, which actually has lectin-like activity. So we'll generally say go to A2 milk, which we can buy readily in Australia. And if you're wanting to have yogurt or cheese, then uh, go for something, uh, sheep or goat or buffalo or something like that, because they're all A2, they don't have the A1 in it. And interestingly enough, um, human breast milk is, uh, fortunately, an A2 milk as well. Um, Seeds, um, they can often uh, have lectins as well. and nuts and a lot of people. So nuts is a bit of a funny one, but as you know, there's enough deleterious substances in nuts. So if you've got almonds, you know, they're very rich in oxalates and things like that. So there's there's enough other reasons why nuts, if you have gut issues, and most people with inflammatory bowel or these issues will, there's plenty of reasons why you should avoid nuts as well. So let's theoretically say, that a patient does go on to a carnivore diet, and if they had come in with a uh, inflammatory bowel disease and then we retested them after a month, what kind of changes would we expect to see? So if we go through, say, a a full blood count, so it's probably too soon. You wouldn't see too much change in the haematological parameters in terms of their red red blood cell indices, but we might actually see a reduction in their white cell count. Um, That would often be your neutrophils. Uh, when it comes to having a look at their iron, would probably see a reduction in their ferritin, um, which would just indicate a reduction in inflammation. And with that, there would be a concurrent reduction in CRP, C-reactive protein and ESR, which is the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Um, so that would probably be the big changes on bloods, would certainly see a significant reduction in faecal calprotectin from the faecal specimen, and if we were to do the double sugar test again, I usually don't do that one twice um, because I find the faecal calprotectin tracks well, but if you did the um, double sugar intestinal permeability test again, you'd, you'd certainly see an improvement with that. The, interesting thing is just asking people how they feel and one of the hidden things and this is where i've learned a lot from georgia reeds um just by asking people how they feel they say i just feel better in my head there's less brain fog i feel happier for one of a better term and i think the cognitive benefits that um people see on this type of this way of eating are underestimated
0: that's, this is all really interesting, Paul. And I, I want to just circle back real quick because uh, with the MCT oil stuff, is that why when we see some folks kind of starting a ketogenic diet or a high fat, low carb diet, and they maybe are going to turn to like a bulletproof coffee type of uh, um, breakfast or, you know, pre day type, uh, you know, meal, I guess. Uh, is that why some folks who, when they go a little too heavy on that stuff, they're seeing digestive issues?
2: I don't know if that's a direct cause, but certainly there is a, an absorption threshold. So if you exceed that, and look, I, in the past, I've taken MCT oil, you know, I think we all, we've all tried it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's the sole reason why, but certainly it's a theory. And one thing I'm actually testing at the moment along those lines is because of that possibility, Uh, one of my patients at the moment is quite an elite athlete and he's uh, got a hold of uh, several bottles of ketone ester. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be testing his intestinal permeability to see if that's actually increased with the ketone ester, just based on the idea that because there are such pronounced effects on the gut, we want to make sure that that's not going to be responsible. But uh, just on the whole MCT thing there, I really don't like people chasing ketones. And I think this is particularly relevant for athletes like Sean, um, who to be fair, you've come in for some heat for your HbA1c. And I think we can explain that quite simply. And part of the explanation relies on understanding exactly what ketones are and how they're produced. So I think a a low level of ketosis is perfectly healthy. But I think when it gets to excessive levels of ketosis, and that would be anything over two or three, I think that reflects impaired gluconeogenesis, which for an athlete trying to perform is not going to be very good. So let me explain how it all works. So the reason your body produces ketones requires something called oxaloacetate to be depleted from the citric acid cycle, the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And that's the reason the oxalate acetate gets depleted is because it's used in gluconeogenesis. So if you don't have enough carbohydrate coming in, your body will say, oh crap, we need to make sugar. We need it for something. And you'll go through this pathway of gluconeogenesis. And then if that depletes your oxaloacetate supply, That means that if you have more acetyl-CoA coming into the citric acid cycle, and that can be um, from fatty acid oxidation. So let's say you're starting to burn fats now, that acetyl-CoA is coming into the citric acid cycle. Without enough oxaloacetate, it can't cycle around. So then it's that acetyl-CoA then gets diverted into the production of ketones. So if you're having a massive level of ketones, that basically indicates impaired gluconeogenesis by way of a uh, relative deficiency of oxaloacetate. So for an elite athlete, especially somebody like you, Sean, you're trying to put out a huge amount of watts on the Concept2 there. Um, And if you wanna restore your glycogen stores after the exercise, there's a number of reasons. You don't want to be running a huge level of ketones because that means that you're gonna have a relatively impaired gluconeogenic response. Does
0: that make sense? This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Peterson's Natural Farms. Peterson's has been bringing high quality protein to market since 1992. All their farms are self sustaining family farms. Their farmers grow all the food used to feed their pigs and give their pigs open pens, which allow them to roam and frolic naturally. They use no growth hormones or antibiotics. They use real seasonings and even smoke their meat with real wood chips rather than liquid smoke. If you would like to support HPO and high quality farming, please visit PetersonFarms.com, that's P E D E R S O N S F A R M S.com, and enter HPO checkout. Now, back to the show. Yeah, Paul, that makes sense. And, you know, one thing Sean and I have been curious about is when we've had exercise phys experts on the show in the past, one thing sometimes we'll notice when you have a highly trained athlete or some of these Olympic athletes doing high-intensity work is they'll have higher-than-normal fasting blood glucose levels. Could you talk to us a bit about the difference between that and, say, higher-glucose path of physiology for diabetics?
2: Um, in terms of diabetic uh, pathophysiology, um, HbA1c has shown to be a really good marker for all galls mortality and cardiovascular risk. But when, if I've ever put a continuous glucose monitor on a diabetic patient, their blood sugar over a 24-hour period has incredible highs and incredible lows. And the HbA1c we get is basically reflecting an average of that blood sugar. But when it's going into the low areas, that's not when it's doing the most damage. It's only doing the damage when it goes into the incredible highs. So the effect of these fluctuations is by having the lows is that it will bring down the average HbA1c of a diabetic patient. Whereas if we threw a continuous glucose monitor onto Sean, we would see it would be flatlined for the most part. I would even bet that during a significant workout, it probably wouldn't drop significantly. So it would be a hell of a lot flatter than it was for a diabetic patient. So when we're trying to interpret Sean's cardiovascular risk profile based on his HbA1c, and we're using the same parameters that we use for diabetic patients, we're comparing two totally different things because the the threshold for damage is gonna be set at a very different level. And further to that, there's very good evidence that it's actually the fluctuation in blood sugar level which causes most damage. So whenever your blood sugar level goes up or down, that creates oxidative stress in the mitochondria. And those reactive oxygen species which are produced are the ones that will damage the LDL particles. That's what we we talked about last time, last year when I was on your program and um, several of these other things. So if you have a stable blood sugar, even if it might be a touch higher, a stable blood sugar level is much healthier than a fluctuating blood sugar level. And I think we're just, when we're interpreting Sean's results, we need to understand this guy's an athlete. He's not having those same peaks of blood sugar level. Because of that, his average HbO1c is gonna be relatively higher than for say a diabetic. And the fact that uh, it is higher indicates that his gluconeogenic capacity is running perfectly well. Which for an elite performance athlete is exactly what you want.
1: Yeah, Paul, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, because what I do is very glycolytic, you know, it's it's anaerobic glycolysis, but but nonetheless, it's very good it's it tends to be, you know, the, the, the level of effort I'm putting out relative to max VO2 max is very, very high. And it's it requires glucose. I mean, I think we get that. And and what I see is uh in contrast to a standard ketogenic diet, I think I'm I'm better at gluconeogenesis in that in that regard and allows me to do that. And I think that's pretty you know, pretty interesting. It's why I seem to recover and I've seen a lot of athletes, you know, now we've got professional rugby players and jujitsu athletes and, and Olympic shot putters that are doing this now with without a decrement in their performance, which I think is uh um Probably why I think it's it's at very efficient gluconeogenesis, and I do agree with you that those large blood sugar fluctuations are really a damage is occurring. You know? uh, what we're seeing is in this population of people going carnivore, uh, you know, they'll get concerned because their their normal blood sugar that was hanging around in the 80s is now in the mid 90s, and yeah. even though every every single CGM reading that I've seen on a carnivore that's been on it after a, after a significant period of time, it is absolutely flat i mean it is flat like a pancake and it's probably what an endocrinologist would dream about with their patients with their diabetic patients because that that's probably the best you can get
2: absolutely agree
1: let me um so paul i mean you're doing this in australia i mean you've, you've got a good system where you've got access to all these neat tests what sort of sort of interesting tests are you using that most of us here might not consider using with regard to this patient population when we're trying to work on dietary manipulation let me ask you this is just an aside because i don't know how much what you think about advanced glycation end products uh as as problematic you know when we talk about diabetic pathophysiology that's really what's happening that's causing or at least that's contributing to the you know whether it's nephropathy the vasculopathy the retinopathy so on and so forth it's you know it's the proteins that are being damaged by the glycation and i think the glycation is occurring um, you know, it's not solely dependent upon glucose because we know fructa- fructose is much more pot- potent at producing yeah, at and- more potent. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's just like we we sort of misinterpret cholesterol. Higher cholesterol can be a problem if, if, if it's in the correct milieu. And I think we're seeing the same thing in my view with, with glucose in some cases, particularly when we're seeing elite level athletes that are lean, muscular, they've got no evidence whatsoever of, you know, this diabetic pathophysiology. And so I think the, the, the advanced glycation end product is an interesting thing. And there are skin autofluorescent readers out there that pretty reliably will tell us the degree of glycation in our body. And it, and it correlates pretty well with uh, vascular, you know, vascular glycation and all that stuff. So I wonder if you give much thought to that sort of uh, yeah, look, so A couple of
2: years ago, I was really digging into the dermatology literature. Uh, dermatologists have some interesting insights and there, they have got a huge amount of stuff published on the advanced by products. I and mean, well, ages for short. Um, that is one of the key factors of aging of the skin. So, uh, you know, obviously it's not the only one, but the, the dermatologists know about this. So they're, they're really experimenting hard with things to try and break down these, uh, these cross-linking between the proteins. So one of the problems is, that once you've formed an age, it's there. But there there are some promising things we call glycation inhibitors. So as you know, the process of formation of advanced glycation end products, first of all, requires the state of glycation where you have a sugar and you have a protein that actually connect together. Now, carnosine, not carnitine, carnosine. It's a combination of two amino acids acts as a decoy receptor effectively for glucose. And there's very good evidence that this will inhibit glycation. And in uh, type one diabetics, when they've looked at HbA1c, and they've also looked at renal function because um, if you have high blood sugars, that'll end up uh, damaging the kidneys eventually. And they have a look at how much protein the kidneys are leaking because they're damaged taking a supplement called carnosine, C-A-R-N-O-S-I-N-E, has been shown to reduce the resultant glycation damage. So I think, uh, look, advanced glycated end products are always gonna be a problem. Is it useful to test them? Well, in effect, doing fructosamine or HbA1C is a surrogate marker for that. Um, I personally haven't looked at the skin testing but uh, I think we still try and treat them and we try and prevent it as much as we can. And it's probably also talking about the etymology of the word carnazine. I, I think you'll appreciate this. The word calm has got the Latin root for flesh in it. So if we have a and we have a look at another one, carnitine, which has been shown to be beneficial for fat oxidation, that their name derives from the fact that they're both found in high concentrations in meat and negligible, if at all, found in plant-based foods.
1: Yeah, uh, I think I think carnitine. I think in asparagus you can find at least some in the plant world, but carnosine, yeah. And, and there's there's actually some studies looking at carnosine. Some people suggesting it may be the most potent anti-glycating agent out there. And there's particularly when they talk about brain health, I've seen some some literature referencing that that may be very very beneficial in that particular realm and then we also well, if you see want to that... talk
2: about just on brain health for a moment so two points there so the most potent agent acts exactly so i don't know if you saw in my lecture on uh, cholesterol at all and how that relates to glycation and that glycation is associated with oxidation the most carnosine has been shown to effectively lower rates of oxidized or small dense ldl which is superb And then if you're talking about brain health, here's the thing that a lot of people don't get, is that we talk about beta amyloid plaque deposition being a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. But so the question is, what makes amyloid become insoluble so it precipitates out into these plaques? And the answer is glycation. And there's a really nice link here. So we've all heard about the ApoE4 allele as being increasing the risk for Alzheimer's disease and being a terrible risk factor. So one of the fascinating things is when you compare the ApoE4 allele to the ApoE3 allele, the low risk allele, the ApoE4 variety has at least three times the susceptibility to glycation damage. And if you understand that it's glycation, that then leads to precipitation or insolubility of the beta amyloid. There you have the hallmark for Alzheimer's disease being precipitated on sugar damage.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, you know, we, a lot of people are referring to uh, Alzheimer's disease as type three diabetes. And so again, it just kind of runs to that same sort Well,
2: it certainly has, I mean, I think that reference has been made uh, due to the effect of insulin resistance in the brain, which is absolutely correct. And that's why when we provide an alternate fuel source in the former ketones, that people with symptoms of dementia will significantly improve. Uh, I think this takes it another level. This goes back to another root cause. Um, and they both, they're both interlocked.
1: Hey, Paul, I want to just get your opinion. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently uh, about oxalates as another potentially harmful compound. Are you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, we had Sally Norton on and we had another guy, Elliot Overton on, talking about the potential issues with oxalates and, and actually with people in the carnivore diet seeing secondary issues related to sort of uh, oxalate dumping type syndrome. Are you, are you experiencing that or have any, any insight into that particular issue?
2: I don't have any particular insight, certainly not on the level of Elliot or, or Sally. Um, I'm particularly interested uh, as a sports medicine physician. Um, we see a lot of joint pains, and so we're always, as you know, um, there's several inflammatory joint conditions that we haven't got a handle on yet. Um, we think calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. We've got uric acid from from gout and the seronegatives. And I'm almost certain that oxalates are playing a role in uh, some of the arthropathies we're seeing. Um, I'm not so sure about the mechanism for oxalate dumping, although it does bear remarkable similarities to some of our clinical experience in gout, which is uric acid crystals. And the example there is that when we place people on a drug called allopurinol, which is what we call a xanthine oxidase inhibitor um, related to the metabolism of purines, and we can actually reduce Mm. the level of uric acid. um, It's thought, and I don't know if it's been proven, though it's certainly taught in med school, and I bet you were taught it as well, that you don't put somebody um, on a high dose of allopurinol suddenly with a risk of gout because you might precipitate an attack of their gout. Uh, And that would sort of be, consistent with a reduction in oxalates actually precipitating symptomatology from oxalates but uh i haven't done a deep dive on the research enough yet to um, be comfortable talking about it
1: yeah and i you know like i said i would defer to like you know sally norton she's, she's she's been researching this stuff for five or six years or at least so she's got a pretty good handle on that so it's interesting stuff there Um, You know, with regard to uric acid, it's kind of funny. And and again, I look at this because uric acid is an antioxidant. It's probably one of the the more abundant antioxidants in the body. And we see a role that uric acid is kind of interesting. There's a relationship between uric acid levels and multiple sclerosis. And we see that as uric acid levels tend to be higher, multiple sclerosis indicate uh, multiple sclerosis incident tends to go to zero, which is kind of just an interesting observation. There's some thought that uric acid may actually have a pr- pr- protective role in some cases um, because we see some people that have high levels of uric acid that do not have clinical symptoms of gout, which is kind of interesting. And I and I suspect just like every other single factor out there, yeah. you know, because we like to get reductionist, it's probably something that in the right situation can be a problem. It may be this underlying inflammatory cascade, this underlying... Uh, you know, metabolic disease, insulin dis- dis- dysregulation type of stuff, and so I just find that because we can, we we, we find it gets gets so reductionist about one thing. You know, ah, you know, uric acid is high, therefore bad. You know, take your purinol, your colchicine, your your, your anti inflammatories, whatever. You know, the way we treat gout, we treat gout, but it, it may be kind of more than that. You know, more than one well, we thing.
2: Totally agree, and a case in point there. So uric acid being an antioxidant, there's another natural antioxidant called uh, bilirubin. And often we look at people with bilirubin and we wanna try and lower it, but there's a condition called, uh, well, correctly pronounced Gilbert syndrome. In Australia, we say Gilbert syndrome. And that's associated with naturally high levels of um, bilirubin. And this is called a syndrome. And I say to my patients, If there was one syndrome I could have that I would put my hand up for it would be that because it's actually associated within the order of a 50 percent reduction of cardiovascular mortality and the reason is is because it's such a potent antioxidant so we talked about how the fluctuating sugar levels create oxidative stress and that underpins a lot of the damage having bilirubin around you you might be diabetic and having fluctuating sugar but high level of bilirubin because you've got this uh Gilbert syndrome uh that will actually lead to uh, an amelioration of that damage so when we actually look at blood tests and we often uh, see a high level of bilirubin and we assume it's bad it's not always pathological and in some cases it can even be beneficial
1: yeah it kind of you 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 learn it's more complex than you think it is Um, what has been, um, you know, are you seeing a uh, significant? I mean, what? Let's tell me some of the some of the stuff you're seeing. You know, this is this is interesting. It's something I saw, and maybe you can speculate as to why this is. We have a another physician out there with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which, as you know, is a connective tissue disorder, yeah, which is yeah. a genetic disorder, and, and and you know, often it results in multiple you know, dislocations, subluxations, which are kind of like partial dislocations. And there's a physician in her fifties who's had it her whole life. You know, it's a you know again, it's a genetic issue. And I've seen and I've seen countless not countless but enough patients with that to realize how disabling that is to be walking down the street and your shoulder pops out of joint basically for for you know seemingly no reason, or your ankle dislocates. Um, you know, once a week, and it's just so frustrating. But she has that condition. She has now adopted a carnivore diet, and she says she basically has gone almost to zero dislocations or subluxations now working out joint pain has resolved and i'm trying to figure out scratching my head as to figure out how the heck this can help a uh you know a genetic yeah. disorder like that i don't know if you've seen i mean obviously there's like uh,
2: there's one of the reasons is is if she had pre-existing fatty liver so the liver actually has n- remarkable regenerative potential um and it secretes something called matrix metalloproteinases, and these are the only enzymes in the body which can break down collagen uh, connective tissue and the liver so i don't know if you've heard of the story of prometheus you know is you steal from the gods and you get punished you get tied to a stake and an eagle comes and eats your liver every day and then the liver regrows now that is based in fact partially because the liver does actually regenerate it's the only organ of the body which can do that And one of the reasons underpinning that capacity is because it actually has this, uh, the secretion of matrix metalloproteinases. Now, if you have fatty liver, for whatever reason, the liver will then increase the production of these matrix metalloproteinases, And they're not confined strictly to the portal circulation. They can have a systemic effect. And the whole extracellular matrix of all the connective tissue in our body will then have an increased catabolic stress. So certainly that's that's the reason why people with osteoarthritis when they lose a little bit of weight, which isn't enough to benefit them mechanically, but it's enough to treat their fatty liver, they will experience massive amounts of reduction in joint pain. So I'd theorise that it may be something to do with matrix metalloproteinases, but it could also just be due to the, the uh, increase in um, protein synthesis um, in the tissues generally and whether that's type one, type two, type three collagens or elastin or, you know, as you know, there's um, this is what underpins these connective tissue disorders. They just have funky levels with that. And I'd probably use as an example, um, my whole life I've been taught that once you've got osteoporosis, you cannot fix it. Um, What's done is done. And yet when we've actually put people on calcium and vitamin D, with high protein diets, not only can we stop osteoporosis progressing, but we can reverse it. So, and that's because of, you know, the, there's a huge amount of bone, which is actually made of protein. I actually described to my patients that bone is just mineralized protein. And in the past, we've only ever given them calcium or vitamin D um, because we think, well, there's calcium in bones. That must be important, maybe a little bit of phosphate, but that doesn't negate the need uh, to or that doesn't replace the protein that is essential. Without the protein, you've got no scaffolding to hold the calcium and vitamin D in. So, there's some really nice research that actually, when they actually analyzed um, calcium and vitamin D replacement based on how much dietary protein people were taking in, they actually found you could increase bone mineral density in postmenopausal females, the population that is you know, considered to be the hardest one to treat. So perhaps with this connective tissue disorder, going carnivore, you're going really high protein. We know you actually are affecting protein synthesis in a way that you just don't get on a standard diet.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, we had uh, a yeah, uh, professor Don Lehman on, he was talking about that, the relationship between protein and bone density. And it was It was actually a nice follow-up because the episode before that we had uh, Sylvia Tabor on the show and she had done DEXA scans before and after she started doing a carnivore diet and noticed the DEXA scan had improved bone density in it as well. So it is really interesting that seemingly a lot of people have missed that piece of the puzzle.
2: Yeah. Look, uh, I'm afraid I've got patients waiting, guys.
0: (laughs) Well, we we don't want to keep them from... uh, being able to learn from you like we have so
1: <laughs> yeah paul thank you very much for coming on we'll wrap this up um you know we'll have to do we'll do some more of these obviously you've got a lot we just got i think i think you and i and, and zach we've got probably two days worth of material we could go through and have lots of fun so we'll why don't we do it another day, day. yeah we'll do it a sure. couple months down the road sure and then uh paul what do you have on your agenda are you going to be speaking anywhere for people to find you real quick
2: Yeah, so I've got a conference, uh, it's actually a doctor conference, so I don't know if it's going to be recorded. Um, I'm actually doing it on interpreting blood tests, actually. So I'm doing two lectures uh, next weekend uh, down in Melbourne. got a conference in Cairns in September and another one in Gold Coast in October, and that's all I've got in the pipeline for the moment. Just to point, if I can plug, I've started a YouTube channel where I'm starting to do a few short videos, so that's... uh, at Dr. Paul Mason, uh, same as my Twitter handle there. So uh, check it out. I'm, uh, I'm trying to milk the su- subscribers at the moment. And uh, yeah, that's all from me, I think.
1: Perfect. And, and just for the record, you are happy to see patients that eat meat. You're not going to put them on a plant-based diet typically. <laughs> for people are looking for a, are looking for a doctor in say. Australia. That's,
2: that's very fair to say.
1: All right. Good deal. All right, Paul, we'll let you get out of here, man. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. All
0: right, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul.
1: Cheers. Hey, folks. Human Performance
0: Outliers Podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.